Hello, thank you for joining us. It's another weekly episode of Friendly Reminder. It's your friendly reminder of what's going on around the world, in our lives, and everything in between. My name is Gus, and I'll be your host. And joining me, as always, are my two dear friends. Sam, how are you today? I'm doing really well. How are you? Doing pretty good. Pretty good. It's been a pretty decent week. Daniel, thank you for joining us. How are you today? Doing super well, Gus. How are you? Not bad. Doing well, and I'm glad both of you are here today for another episode. And we're going to get started. Um, we're going to, you know, start with our typical political topics today. And we're going to talk about somebody who's not typical whatsoever. And I'm talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I want to lead into what she means for the Republican Party and where the Republican Party is headed these next couple of years. So you guys know about Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Like just just to kind of if our listeners are not familiar, she is a um, a congresswoman. I believe she represents a, a district in Georgia. Um it's recently come out that uh, through Facebook posts, likes, videos, all sorts of things that just a couple of things that she believes in. She believes that the Parkland and the Newton shootings were false flags created by the government to take away gun rights. Um, she believes that the California forest fires were created, I believe, by uh, Jewish space lasers. Um, she uh, believes that the Republican. Just to be party- fair, she said they were Rothschild. They were Rothschild-funded space lasers, mm-hmm. and she completely pulled that out of her butt. So that's not. She didn't say Jewish. She said Rothschild-funded, which is a lot better. Right. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> that's normal. That's just a normal thing to say. Um, she uh, is a 9/11 truther, I believe. Uh, she d- does not believe that. Or does she believe that 9/11 was an inside out, uh, inside job, something like that? Um, she, I think she, I think she came out and she said she believed 9/11 happened. So it was a bra- it was a moment of bravery, and mm. I commend her for it. Yeah, I'm proud of her. She deserves. A, <laughs> she said 9/11 happened. One might say she deserves a standing ovation for for that. Um, what other? I think that's actually when she got the standing ovation. She was like, <laughs> "9/11 happened," and she got and half the Republican slur like, "Yeah," <laughs> and it was caused by the globalists. <laughs> yeah, and she gave yeah, she like she gave a speech in front of Congress, and half of the Republican Party stood up and gave her a standing ovation because of her bravery, uh, quote unquote. I mean, long story short, she is fucking crazy. Uh, she's an insane woman. We've talked about her in the past before. Uh, she's anti-Islamic, um, probably a white supremacist. She very much be- <laughs> like I believe that if she was if she was not in Congress, like literally inside the Capitol building on January the sixth that she would have been with the mob uh, trying to get into the Capitol building if she was not elected as a congresswoman. Um, she is one of them uh, for certain. And she's been essentially causing a debate within the Republican Party. Uh, and just, I believe, when was it? Uh, about, I think yesterday, actually, she, uh, the House did uh, vote to strip her away from all her committee assignments. It was largely um, in party lines. Uh, um, all I believe all Democrats voted to to a stripper of her assignments. Eleven Republicans voted also in in favor of stripping her of her assignments. Just was yeah. it an anonymous vote? Go Republicans. Was it an anonymous vote? 
Um, that's a good question. I don't believe so. I think it was uh, on record. Um, I don't have the list of the Republican uh, the Republicans that voted, but I do think you can you can look it up and and find it. Uh, but it was not an anonymous or secret ballot. It it is on the record. Um, again, just 11 Republicans, though. Just to clarify, uh, there was also a vote on stripping Liz Cheney of her uh, leadership role because she voted to impeach Donald Trump. And I believe around 60-something, 60 67 Republicans voted in favor of that. Um, so that again, one, I think definitely what that one was anonymous, which means people actually, a lot of Republicans wanted to kick her out for voting to impeach Donald Trump. Yeah. So this is the Republican Party, right? Like Marjorie Taylor Greene, like one one I think it's an easy argument to make that Marjorie Taylor Greene represents more of the Republican Party than say a Mitt Romney uh or a um a Paul Ryan or uh, what's Jeff um uh, Jeff Flake of Arizona, like the so-called quote-unquote moderate Republicans, I think is now a small fraction of the Republican Party, and about 80 to maybe 90 percent is is more, <laughs> really more reflected by Marjorie Taylor Greene. Is that a fair assessment? You guys think? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I don't want to put a percentage of it. I don't know... How many voters believe some echo of this? I know a lot of people in, this, in the Fox News realm who split off and went to like Newsmax, I'm sure believe some version of this QAnon nonsense. Um, it's not, maybe not the identical thing, but they believe, and I think the one thing that they're all going to rally around all these QAnon people all the way to the, you know, so-called reasonable Republicans is the idea that the election was stolen. That's the big lie, right? It all follows from that. Um, if that's the premise you're working with, that the election was, that the election was stolen, I mean, and right in front of our eyes, then working back from backwards from that, you're like, well, yeah, the shady elite, you know, the the people behind the people, the shadow government, the deep state, you know, how how long does it take before you're embracing these QAnon theories? And I think like practically speaking, it's it's a direct line because I think a lot of this and Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, not to <laughs> commend something she said, she made this point when she spoke in front of the Republicans, she was like, I was led to believe this stuff, like about uh, the school shootings being faked or, or something like that, which is true. And she was like, and I did it because I doubted the mainstream media, which I think a lot of Republicans can can kind of sympathize with. And and it's true. It's it's people who are like, well, I doubt the mainstream media. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to look at Fox News. Oh, well, Fox News is publishing the same lie that Trump is saying is a lie that the Democrats won. I'm going to go to Newsmax. I'm going to go to Facebook. I'm only going to get my information from like random Facebook articles that my friends post because that's what I trust because I don't trust the mainstream media. And then all of a sudden you find yourself talking about, you know, Rothschild funded space lasers. This isn't this isn't that different from what you hear on Fox News every day, by the way. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about the shady elites getting together and opening the borders up in order to destroy real America. Um, that's, you know, that's exactly what Tucker Carlson's whole bag is. So um, I don't I want to be able to say even if the party is not QAnon party, you, this is the path they were headed to. So, <laughs> you know, pin them with this and and they're not going to be able to win without this. These insane people. I think they know that, which is why they have not come out more strongly against it. Um, so let's pin them with it. Enjoy.
you you circulated a, a massive lie and this is what you get. You circulated an ecosystem that promoted these massive lies and this is what you get. So so pin them with it is my take. Yeah. And I mean, I think that uh, you you are going to see the more quote unquote reasonable Republicans. I'm not even going to say moderate Republicans uh, kind of come out and make some sort of statements uh, against them. They've done it in different ways. I think Mitch McConnell was a little bit more forthright with it when it was saying like her beliefs are, I believe he said a cancer within the Republican Party. Marco Rubio uh, did the you know, his little little Marco self uh, took a more coward's way out of saying, "Oh well, stop amplifying her beliefs. Stop talking about her. If you if you just stop talking about her, it'll it'll go away." But even these Republicans, um, it, you know, we have to remember that we're only a couple of months removed from Trump being president, and all of them being around one hundred percent around Donald Trump. And let's be honest, there is not much of a difference between a Donald Trump and a Marjorie Taylor Greene. There is not much of a rift between them. I mean, uh, let's let's remember that Donald Trump could not denounce QAnon. He could not denounce the Proud Boys. Um, he accepted their their support, even basically praised the support. We know Donald Trump is a conspiracy uh, theorist. He he, there is not a conspiracy theory that he doesn't love. Um, we know that he's a racist. We we know that he he. <laughs> indulges more than indulges in in the idea of authoritarianism uh and so it's he was president right like he was president for four years and he is still largely seen as the leader of the republican party and still probably the leading front runner in 2024 i'm not i'm not sure if, the, if that that's going to happen if he's going to run as a uh, as a candidate or if he's going to start his own party i don't even want to think about it right now i'm trying to close my eyes and not not think about the thought but even the, like you can't take by like in face value what what Mitch McConnell or Marco Rubio are saying because you know that if somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene wins the nomination in 2024 they're going to rally behind such a candidate right i don't think there's a question that they're even going to take a stand even even Mitt Romney the guy that in in 20 um 2015 or 2016 came out and called Donald Trump a a, a con man as soon as Donald Trump was elected, he accepted an invitation to have dinner with him in the hopes that he would be selected as Secretary of State, right? Like, this is the kind of people that they are. And, and if this is the direction they're going, I don't, I don't foresee any of them taking that much of a stance against this movement. And I think this movement is where the Republican Party is headed, and I don't see anything stopping it. And I mentioned a couple of episodes ago. If this is the Republican Party now, right? Like if, if the Republican Party is the party of Trump and therefore de facto the party of white supremacy and the party of fascism and and uh, the party of authoritarianism, uh, then how, <laughs> where's the middle ground with them? Where's the negotiation with them? These are not people you want to work with or compromise. You just want to flat out defeat them, right? I just think there's... I hate to say this, but I don't know if there's any going back from from this situation. And if this is just... Uh, I think it's difficult because, look, the more and more, the closer and closer you get to this... I'm, I'm going to... I think of these things as like an orbit, right? Where QAnon, honestly, not even QAnon, but just out and out protocols of the elders of Zion, anti-Semitism, Jews are really controlling the world stuff, is at the center, right? And all of these other things are kind of... As, are, are kind of 
going towards that. QAnon is almost that, right? It's like the furthest that a lot of that, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about Jewish space lasers, that kind of thing. Um, you know, but the stuff you hear on Tucker Carlson is also on that spectrum, you know, the shady elites getting together behind closed doors in order to, to, uh, you know, destroy the American working man. It's all fascist eliminatory ideology. Um, especially, you know, when you get to the QAnon part, it's explicitly eliminatory. They're literally a death cult. They literally imagine something called the storm that's coming. And the storm is literally, uh, you know, uh, arresting people and executing them, <laughs> arresting Democrats and, and, and who knows who else. And, and for various, you know, vague crimes, um, running a global pedophilia ring, probably stealing an election, probably all kinds of things. But, um, I, I don't know if you mentioned this, but one of the things that for Marjorie Taylor Greene that I think uh, puts this far and beyond anything else um, is she twice uh, came out and said Nancy Pelosi should be executed. Or sorry, she once liked the comments that said Nancy Pelosi should be executed. Um, and then later she she spoke in a Facebook video suggesting that Nancy Pelosi should be executed. So, I mean, this this is just beyond the pale kind of um, stuff. And this is what, this is what these people ultimately want is just a, a mil, they want a military coup that's going to just rise up and execute everybody. Um, so the, so the question, the closer the, the, you are as a voter and as a congressman to actually believing this stuff, the more, how are you going to vote? How are you going to on one day say, yeah, these people are literally involved with the devil, literally demonic in various ways. They they work with demonic people and and ex and kidnap kids and execute them. Uh, but we want to work with them on I don't know uh, social security reform. <laughs> it's just it's it's very it's it's so confusing. Um, and I guess it can still happen because honestly, these Republicans are two faced, and a lot of them. Who the fuck knows what they actually really believe, and and they could probably be looped in on various things. But for the most part, uh, and I think the Democrats are doing this. It's like fuck them, fuck them, just ignore them. Go forward with what you want to do. If you can get some of them on board, great, great. Um, but you know, your your Republican quote unquote is Joe Manchin. Get that guy on board. That's all you really need. <laughs> just get it done. Get everything you want done. I think you can't ignore it anymore. I think you have to, you have to, maybe not, if you can't deal with it, you have to. You literally can, though. They literally can. <laughs> right now, yeah. But, I mean, in 2022 or in well, 2024, right we don't, like, what, what were you saying? Well, I was saying we're talking about right now. Oh, okay. Well, I, I yeah. think the point. And, well, I think the point is that in terms of when you say ignoring, it's you just pass what you can right now. You just get the votes that you need, uh, whether it's bipartisan or not. You pass legislation uh, that can affect people. You pass a big COVID bill. You pass uh, a health care reform. Uh, you pass a, a legislation to raise the minimum wage in the hopes that this actually affects people. And then come 2022 and 2024, you're re rewarded for it, which was not what happened in 2010 when uh, Obama and the Democrats passed a smaller than necessary stimulus bill and probably overly compromised in, in a health care bill that people didn't really tangibly 
feel. And then they they decided that the Democrats didn't do enough and they punished them. And, you know, they, they took the quote unquote shellacking that, that Obama said in the House in, 20, in 2010. And now we have an even smaller majority and we probably can't afford the Republicans being in charge anytime soon if this is the Republican Party that we're dealing with. So that's, I think, the idea behind ignoring what the fuck they're what's going on with them and just passing legislation that helps the American people. And do it alone if you have to. The reason more de- the reason more congressional Democrats are suspicious of Republicans aren't because they think they're the party of QAnon and Trump. It's because they know that they're the party of Mitch McConnell. <laughs> and they know that they will just lead them on for months at a time, let them water down their own bills, and then not even vote for them in the end. Republicans aren't afraid that these bills are too big. They're afraid that they're going to work. And then when they work, people will elect Democrats. And Joe Biden needs to push these and Congress needs to push these as bipartisan, even if it's just Democrats that vote for them, because they're bipartisan in the sense that everybody supports them across the board, including Republicans. So these are bipartisan. The Republicans just don't want to get on board because they're owned by, you know, the elites. It's a simplification, but that's that's I feel like the message that needs to be, you know, Mitch McConnell is 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 very good at being a pivot point at being a veto point. Um, in favor of of basically wealthy people, right? The one thing that the Republicans passed, lo and behold, the one thing they pushed through re- reconciliation immediately was a massive tax cut. And then everything else, they kind of just didn't give a shit because that's what they wanted. <laughs> that's what their that's what their constituency wanted. Their constituency being very wealthy people. Um, massive tax cuts and deregulation. They don't really care about anything else. Uh, they were happy to, you know, Mitch McConnell was happy to just sit on his hands and not pass any of the things that Trump wanted and just say, well, look, there's, you know, the filibuster or whatever, you know, when he could have easily overrode that and absolutely would have if he had actually wanted to pass any of that stuff. So I think, you know, Democrats are right to be skeptical. And and if they're smart, they're going to be skeptical of anything. They need to go forward with bipartisanship in the form of, doing what the voters want, and then let the Republicans join in if they want to or not. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, let's we'll talk a little bit of how we think Democrats are doing with that and how we're doing uh, or how they're doing with the stimulus bill and how it's going through Congress. Before I go into that subject, though, I do also just want to talk about how I feel this is going to be covered in the media, and I've already seen some examples, um, in like political art articles and whatnot, with how you're going to try to get this both sides situation with the extreme right and the quote unquote extreme left. And I just want to be very clear, like we constantly, or at least Republicans, constantly talk about radical le- leftists and radical liberals. Let's talk about what radical liberal and radical leftist means. It means a single payer, healthcare for all. It means giving people money, especially during a pandemic when when they need to stay home and not go out to work. Uh, it means facing um, our environmental crisis so we can avert environmental disaster in, in just a couple of years or at least a decade or two. Uh, these are ideas. These are policies, right? Like these, these, these are economic agendas and political agendas and social agendas. On the right, we have, well, we got to execute the Democrats and um, fires are being caused by Jewish space lasers. <laughs> like, these are not 
even policies. They're, it's just nuts. It's con dumb conspiracy theories and lies. Lies about elections. Lies about um, the government doing, uh, you know, trying to take away guns. Uh, lies about immigrants. It's just absurdity and there is you're going to start seeing these false equivalents of like oh well the the democrats are embracing the radical left just like the the uh the republicans are embracing the radical right they they there is no equivalency between the two. One is embracing maybe ideas probably slower than they should and the other is embracing like the craziest conspiracy theories and lies. I think they will say I think they will what I think they'll compare it to is Ilhan Omar, AOC, they're, you know, some of their more lefty comments. And what they'll compare it to is um, Black Lives Matter stuff. They'll say, well, all this is radical. What they might also compare it to is Russia stuff and say, well, yeah, all the Russia stuff was fake. So, you know, that, that that's, yeah, that that's what the comparison will be. Um. Obviously, I don't think those comparisons hold up at all. But I do, I do want to acknowledge that what the Democrats did here was uh, unprecedented. I do not think that a the majority party has ever stripped a minority party committee member. I know that parties have acted on their own. For example, I know that after you know years of out open white supremacy, Steve King was stripped of all his committee ships. Uh, but but that was by Republicans. So, I, uh, you know, I, I do worry about the precedent it sets because I know they're going to they're going to be like, well, you know, Democrats believe in global warming and that's a conspiracy. So let's eject all the Democrats that believe in global warming from the committees. Um, not that it not that. And I hate to say this, but not that it really matters per se, because in the end of the day, uh, do committees really matter? I, there, there's a whole political there's a whole uh political theory about well do committees really matter or not i don't want to get into that but i'll say that i i personally think that the extent of committee committee membership especially for minority parties i don't know how much it actually matters especially ba you know how the how congress is run today uh, which is just a series of escalating conflicts that that really never resolve until one party just kind of runs roughshod over the other yeah I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it matters or not. I do. I, I do feel that that may happen. Like once Republicans are back in power, they're going to see this as a point of revenge. Uh, and again, do it uh, by s stripping um, congressmen and women from uh, from the committee chairs just based on actual policy and not this. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene should not be in, and whether it matters or not, she should not be in the educational committee if she doesn't believe that these school shootings actually happened. And there's evidence that she believes they, they didn't actually happen. Or, or if they did happen, they were caused by the government and not by uh, people with guns that shouldn't have guns that go into a school and shoot 10-year-olds, you know? Let's go ahead and move on, though. Like, let's, let's talk about the other side. Real quick, let's talk about the Joe Biden administration. Let's talk about the Democrats. Let's talk about the $1.9 trillion package where it looks like it's been um, basically set on the path of reconciliation. And it's still, I, 
I don't understand the entire process, but the legislation isn't actually finalized. It still has to go through that vote, but it looks like they made the decision that they're going to pass it with just the 50 um, required votes in the Senate uh, to, to make it law. It's still going to be a process. I believe the time frame is that they don't expect it to be done until early to, to mid-March, but it looks like it's going to happen, and we just have to wait to see what the actual bill is. Um, and on that note, we've, we've also gotten a, a Biden administration that has pretty much uh, been in favor of this. They, they've shown support. They they made statements that they would want it to be bipartisan if if that is possible, if there's actually Republicans in favor of that, if there's actually Republican ideas. But if not, and, uh, and if those Republican ideas don't meet the moment, then they're going to go at it alone. This he is... met with he met with the ten senators, right? He let them lay out their ideas, and they said, and he let, and it was a friendly meeting. And then he he said that he did not think those ideas met the moment, and he is absolutely correct. Uh, they were trying to you know negotiate down the checks, negotiate down the caps, negotiate you know just take out all of the aid to cities, take out all of the aid to schools, take out all of the aid to small businesses. Um, Let's see. Take reduce the unemployment. It was they were just watering it down, and I think you know maybe you know the Obama administration might have thought, well, these Republicans are acting in good faith. Let's meet them halfway, um, and then we might have gotten a watered down bill that didn't do what they wanted to do, and then they would lose. And then Republicans wouldn't even vote for it in the end. So uh, I think this was the right kind of tactic because I think that, but, you know, obviously I think we've said on this that we think re reconciliation is a clumsy way to do it. It was, it was not meant for this kind of thing. It was meant for budget, you know, budget reconciliation. It was basically so you could take two bills and kind of square them on a funding, on a funding basis between the house and the Senate. Um, but uh, I, I wonder, I have a real politic question for you, Gus, is how much pressure can can Democrats realistically put on the Senate parliamentarian? Because the Senate parliamentarian has the ultimate the ultimate uh, decision of what counts as budget reconciliation, which is kind of, I mean, at this point, it's it's a little bit fake anyway, right? I mean, it's 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 not. So uh, how much pressure can can did I I swear there was some Bernie interview where Bernie said uh yeah you can you can kind of bully this guy into doing it and I, and I just remember thinking if you're going this far that you're putting pressure on this poor Senate parliamentarian just just get rid of the filibuster just do it this is this is just a silly way to get around this this insane uh block on legislation I'm not quite sure what what kind of pressure they they can um, they can place. I do know that the current um, parliamentarian was actually appointed by then Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Um, I don't know what that says about her political beliefs because let's face it, everything at the end of the day is political. Um, there's there's going to be political motivations um, it, underneath every. Kind it's of possible decision, this, just like this person is court. is. It's possible this person is is more straight laced. I mean, in the end of the day, do we, uh, hell make me the Senate parliamentarian. I'll let you pass anything through reconciliation. I'll abolish the filibuster via reconciliation. If you make me the Senate parliamentarian, I don't know, but this person, if, if Reed put him in, that means they've been there long enough that McConnell 
thought they trusted them enough, then I assume that they're not, they're not as stilted as, as we might think they are. I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, that's the whole thing with reconciliation. It's such a wonky process uh, where, again, it can only, this is budget reconciliation. I believe you can use reconciliation for other things, but strictly when you use uh, uh, reconciliation for budget purposes, you can only do it once a year. It's, it's a clumsy way of passing it through Congress, uh, through Congress and through specifically through the Senate. I think there's restrictions in terms of how, how it can be cleaned, how legislation can be cleaned up by, by committee over time it's one of the reasons why when it has ACA, to be deficit neutral right. right it has to be deficit neutral right and it, it's one of the reasons why the ACA was kind of so patchy also like when it came out and there were holes and and it took a uh, well I mean the legislation itself was written for it to take a long time for it to actually process but there was there, there were just constant holes that they had to kind of plug in over time uh, because it was a patchy legislation it was it was it was it wasn't thoroughly vetted and written as as well because it didn't go through the normal uh senate process it, it goes through this like really which also led it was sloppily written which led to multiple litigations yeah exactly. where it almost got overturned multiple times and so this uh, again i uh, it's I, i'm very conflicted about this process because i don't think this is the right way to go about it i think the right way is to just end the filibuster to somehow get some dirt on joe mansion to, to get him to support the ending the filibuster and and do away with it so you can or just give him give him whatever he wants yeah hand just... him give him whatever he wants although mansion got mansion got behind reconciliation quick i mean he he fell in line and and he voted for reconciliation and then stumbled you know uh walked away mumbling something about bipartisanship i mean yeah. he in the end of the day we, i we talk a lot of crap about mansion but he fell in line quick this time i think because nobody trusts mitch mcconnell and hey they shouldn't um right because the filibuster has basically become a de facto mcconnell veto um it, it became so in the Obama administration and, and they see it coming. So if the, you know, if the, if the narrative has to be abolished the McConnell veto, then that's what it has to be, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's the other side of my conflict, right? Like, even though we're using this very messy process, I had my fears that uh, they would even resort to this. I, like, I, I had my fears that they were going, especially like the, Let's let's face it. We all had reservations and still have reservations about the Joe Biden administration and Joe Biden himself. He was elected as moderate Joe. He was elected as a guy who still believed in in bipartisanship, uh, the uniter, the healer, the person that says that once Trump is out, Republicans were going to have an epiphany and realize that you know tr Trumpism is not the right path, and they were going to come to the table with with Democrats to to get things done, which always felt like a like a fantasy. So I want to say that our, our our fears once we knew that Joe Biden was going to become president of the United States is that he was immediately going to compromise himself. Uh, he, he was going to be his own um, uh, his own uh, enemy in, in that sense. And, and he was going to uh, pull back on his ideas. That hasn't happened yet. I felt like I feel like his his executive orders right from the bat were the executive orders that we needed. And I feel like the way he's talked about this this 
$1.9 trillion package and the way his administration has communicated about on this $1.9 trillion package and the way he's been pushing for reconciliation with the idea that if Republicans want to come to the table, like fine, but if not, we're just going to pass it. That has at, at, at least now exceeded my expectations. And it makes me a little bit more hopeful about the next, at least the next two years. I don't know how the midterms are going to come about, but I feel like if at least you get this done, you're giving yourself a puncher's chance to to keep the Senate and keep the House in 2022. Yeah, I mean, we definitely talked about boldness. Um, Democrats need to embrace boldness. This is a crisis. This is multiple overlapping <laughs> overlapping crises democrats need to embrace boldness now they have like literally the slimmest majority possible to to do this um in and no time to do it in um so let's hope it works <laughs> let's hope that this enough people like this or like the other stuff that democrats are able to do that they will win you know and they will win even though um, I guess an increasingly larger, large share of the population thinks that they are in league with Satan. Um, I feel weird saying that, but it's not inaccurate. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing that makes me hopeful is that in some ways it's not one-to-one, -one, but I try to juxtapose this with the, uh, with the Obama administration because there's similarities. Uh, when Obama came into office he also had to face like quite an existential crisis or, or an economic crisis, right? Like he had to face right from the get go the the Great Recession of two thousand and nine, and uh, you know when it comes to the parallels there, he tried to compromise with Republicans, pass a stimulus bill. I still think there's enough evidence to show that that stimulus bill did help save the economy, but people didn't feel it right like and it wasn't big enough even most economists at that time felt like he he compromised too much and, and passed a package that was not sufficient to resolve the issue and it was a slow recovery uh from them it did recover but it was a slow process here i see where they it looks like the democrats have internalized that lesson and have decided that there is no good faith negotiation with the republicans at least the way they stand now and that the important thing is to pass the bill immediately and for it to be as at least you know you could still argue that this bill needed to be bigger and that the checks needed to be bigger etc but still somewhat of a bill that meets the moment and and i feel like they're in they're at least on the path towards that but then you know you're probably going to get into the next phase if we ever do recover from this pandemic and there's probably maybe in 2022 or 2023 um a debate about um health and uh, just like Obama, you know, when when we passed when Obamacare was passed, it was a huge accomplishment at the time for Democrats, but they suffered a lot of losses, and they you could argue they overly compromised. Remember that Barack Obama was in favor of the public option from the very get go, and the mandate was a compromise on his part uh, with uh, Senate and House Democrats. And G Gus, I will I will say maybe in partial defense of the Obama administration is they were also dealing with, um, you know, we we uh, we make fun of Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin, but uh, you know the they were dealing with a lot of blue dog Democrats. They had Ben Nelson um, and uh, Joe, our old friend Joe Lieberman, <laughs> was still was still caucusing with the Democrats at that point. So. Yeah. 
Um, you know, it was, I believe he's the one that, that destroyed, undermined the public option, but I don't recall exactly. Maybe you recall, but so we are dealing with a more, a more progressive caucus, which, which I think also helps, uh, yeah. this situation, but also, different. also a much slimmer majority though, right? Like, I mean, Obama also had 59, uh, Democrats in the Senate and a pretty big majority in the house. So, um, this now like Democrats have the tiniest majority in the Senate and the tiniest majority in the house. And even though probably as a whole, the democratic party has moved left, just the fact that these majorities are so small, you know, I'm, I'm, one of the reasons I feel optimistic is because of this reality is and because we got the, the great results that we got in Georgia. Um, and at least this is happening. At least I think this is a victory. If, if, if this gets done and if, you know, we'll see what the final bill is, but if it, if it resembles what, what Joe Biden proposed, then I think it's going to be good for the American people. I think people are going to feel it. And I think it's at least a big improvement uh, over what I think we initially got with with Obama and the the stimulus bill back in two thousand nine. But do you think they will remember come election time? I think there's a bigger chance. You know, when you get a check, look how I, I and we've talked about it on this podcast. Like I, I think we all can agree that the the stimulus checks probably helped Donald Trump. Uh, and if he had passed maybe one or two more of those before election, he might have won. Right, he at least probably would have gotten the votes he needed in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Um, and th these things really and look look at look at the Georgia runoff. Right now, granted, like I know that that was a debate at the time, and now we're going to see if people remember like a couple years later. But you could argue that that stimulus talk had a big effect in the Georgia runoff. Like it seems like people really like this and they vote accordingly. I was about to say Georgia is incredible. Georgia, a red state. <laughs> turned blue for the first time when two candidates weren't really leftists in any way. They were very moderate, but ran on just giving cash, direct cash transfers, direct wealth distribution. Um, it's pretty astounding. And I think, you know, to the extent the zeitgeist uh, can capture it and, you know, not and, and, and run with it, I think Democrats need to run with it. I don't know. And they need to make good on it too. <laughs> they can't just run on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They they actually need to fulfill the promise. Otherwise, people will remember, and you know they're going to vote for the other side, even if that other side uh, believes crazy QAnon conspiracies theories and believes that um, that Democrats should be executed. Let's let's or worse, they they're not going to even show up. Why why vote? Why vote? What is it? What difference does it make to me? You know. Yeah. Again, this is still a very perilous situation. Um, I still think we're fighting for a democracy to this very day, and we'll continue to fight for it. Uh, but I have some reason to be a little bit hopeful. I certainly feel a lot better now than I did, you know, back in October or September of last year. But I'm kind of done talking about politics for now, guys. I think we've. You know, it's been some crazy times. Uh, last year, all of 2020 and then 2021 really started off with a very uh, unfortunate um, circumstances with the insurrection and the and the U.S. Capitol riots. So obviously that's been reflected here on this show and in this podcast. We've talked about politics a lot, but 
to our listeners that maybe tuned in when we first started, um, I hope you would remember that one of our goals in this podcast was not to just talk about politics. We will continue to talk about politics. I think it's something we're all very passionate about. Uh, but we also wanted to talk about lighter subjects. You know, we wanted to talk a little bit more about music or or video games or TV shows. And um, you may remember last year at at that year end, we had we covered the things we loved about 2020 that was largely focused on those things. And we kind of still want to add some of that into these main podcast shows. So we're going to do just that. And we're going to start with you, Sam, because you are the Weezer fan friend in my life. I think we all love <laughs> Weezer. We've, we've all, especially that, you know, when they first started their first couple of albums, uh, the blue album, Pinkerton, I think we've, those albums are very dear to all of us. Um, very important, very formative in in our uh, growing up, and in, and also in high, in middle school, high school, etc. But you are the Weezer fan um, through and through. Um, you obviously have different thoughts about different albums, but you just recently uh, listened to the most recent album, which I believe is called OK Human. Correct? Yes. Um... Is that a nod? Is that a nod to OK Computer? Do you know, like the Radiohead album? I'm not sure. That's a great question to f- to find out, and I guess you're gonna research it right now. Um, nah, I'm good. <laughs> but what are your thoughts on the album? So, with with most of uh, Weezer's albums, sometimes it takes some time to to get used to it. Um, when you first hear OK Human," it does sound almost as if it's out of tune, or I guess a better word for it would be, it sounds kind of off. Like it doesn't sound like a like a normal album would sound. But I think that's that's why this album is. That's why you have to take time with Weezer, especially this album. You have to take time to listen to it. Maybe not just one or two times, but um, a few more times. In my experience. The first song is probably the best song, which is um oh my gosh, I completely forgot it. Um it's called All My Favorite Songs. Thank you. All, All my, my favorite, favorite songs, songs are slow which, and sad. Which are which yeah, it's it's an amazing song. Um it as well as goes to the album. This song when you first hear it, it sounds kind of off. It sounds off tune. But it growed on me a lot. And I think this album has grown on me a lot. I mean, going back to what, what you said, Gus, about Weezer being a part of our lives in middle school and high school, like Daniel, I don't know if you remember actually, but when we were in orchestra, you gave, you, you burned me up the blue album and you handed it to me and, and you were like, this is a shit dude. You didn't say that specific. I don't know what you said, but um, you said this. You said yeah, this. Yeah, I'm pretty. Ma- I'm pretty sure one of our mutual friends burned it for me. And oh yeah. Like, oh, um. Who? Ha- yeah. This is magical. Yeah. I mean, the Blue Album and Pinkerton are probably top top twenty albums of all time, at least in general. Not just for me, but in general, probably like the best albums of all time. I think. I don't know what you guys think uh, about that. Some of them. I wouldn't say number no, one or two. No, Blue and Pinkerton. 
Bloom Pinkerton. Yeah, yeah. Some some of the best. You like, mean like in the ob- objective yeah. ranking of albums, we- two Weezer albums are on there? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know what an objective ranking of albums would really be. It's impossible. You can't create that kind of list. People would hate you for it. But yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, like I think the there is a wide consensus that Pinkerton and the Blue Album are masterpieces, especially for their time, right? Like they're they're critically acclaimed. Uh, everybody loves them. And they're widely seen as the two best Weezer albums. And uh, at least, again, critical consensus there's not an al- another weezer album that even comes close to them critical consensus you may have different thoughts but yeah um like it, 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 when when we were in high school our senior year we would sing el scorcho all the time just sing it at sonic whenever we were at the park you know having throwing a frisbee around after we were done we would just like listen to it and sing it out loud and it brought us closer together as a group, even though we were already pretty close. But um, we had fun with Weezer. And I think this album, you can't really like say this album is as close to that because it's not the same time. And But this album, I think if we listened to it back in high school, I think we would all enjoy it and we would sing some of the songs together. Um, I would give it an 8.5 out of 10. There are three very good songs on it. One um, is about Audible. And actually, Audible, um, when this song came out, Audible did an interview with, uh, with uh, I can never pronounce his name right, Rivers Cuomo? Rivers Cuomo. Cuomo, yeah. He, they did an interview with him, and they were surprised, like, that he listens to Audible I think so it's much. Camo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, tomato tomato. Okay Human is is I I still don't compare it to Blue and Pinkerton, but it's it's up there with Weezer albums. I can sing it, I can hum to it as much as I want. It just it makes me feel safe. Is another word for it. It makes me feel not happy, but it makes you feel like life, I guess. And I think with Weezer, all their albums have different feelings to it. Um, but this one is also different and and really good as well. So you like the album then, Sam? Yes, Correct. very much Thank so. You. Thumbs up. Daniel, you've also listened to the album. Um, do you have any thoughts on it? So I'll say that I I think I have a different opinion than Sam in the sense that I I enjoyed the album. Is is it a great album? I think I have not listened it listened to enough to to come to an, a conclusion on that. It sounds like a late Weezer album, which is to say it's it's poppy. It's got some great songs. It's got some okay songs. Um, some that might grow on me. I'm probably going to pull one to three off and throw it on my big Weezer playlist of all the greatest Weezer songs. Um, it's nice. It's a it's a nice dose of sort of normalcy in a in a upside down world, I guess, in a lot of ways. Uh, just putting it on and you know hearing that same sort of Weezer pop pop rock kind of anthems. 
Um, but I would call it just very much a Weezer album, you know, very much a late Weezer album, um, which is to say, you, you know what you're getting with it. And, and I think it, it pays off, uh, in that regard. And, um, so, you know, I would not give it, um, such a high score probably, but I would, I would, um, I'm probably have not listened to it enough to, to really score it, but that, that's sort of how I feel about it. I somewhat, okay. I, I don't have complete thoughts on the album because I've only, I've really listened to it as a whole about one time. And then I've kind of come back. I've, gone back to a couple of songs and and listen to those i agree that the first song is probably my favorite song my feeling like very premature feelings are that when i heard that oh they they enlisted a 38 piece orchestra for this album and it's a little bit more experimental uh when it comes to weezer you know that that really piqued my interest and i went to to it thinking i was going to listen to something different when at the end of the day, I think this is just a very Weezer album. Um, I think eventually the Weezerness out of sound uh, kind of overwhelms the 38-piece orchestra, and it just feels like a very, very Weezer album, which is not to say that's bad. It's just I was expecting something like a little bit of a different direction from, from Weezer, and I feel like this is, as you mentioned, this is I, I can see why it makes you feel safe, Sam, because I think this is a very, at the end of the day, a very safe album despite everything but i, I it's fun it's funny that you mentioned all that experimental stuff because i didn't read any of that and i never in a million years would have guessed any of that if I'm just listening to the album so yeah, yeah I, I think at the end of the day it's it's it it is a weezer weezer album and it's for better or for worse, depending on what you want from it because i think some people can listen to weezer and go back into that uh kind of safe calming uh sense and some people will listen to it and be like i'm a little tired of weezer i'm a little tired of this and, and this doesn't do anything new um and i think that's the predicament that weezer is in right now like and it has been uh they've been around for a very long time the the blue album came out when like 1994 like yeah. mid 90s like it's 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 a long time uh since then and they still keep pumping out records to to their credit but I think they're in that in-between where there's fans that are always going to love Weezer and love that sound, and they relate to it. And there's people that maybe are tired of it. And and there's I don't believe these kinds of albums are going to particularly resonate with them. But it, it's a hard place because then sometimes you might change your sound too much and then your loyal fans are like what the hell is this this isn't a weezer album like you experimented too much and i think that's always kind of the predicament when a band or an artist that's been around as long as weezer has are are always in where what what's the fine line between sounding too tired uh but also don't get so experimental that you're gonna actually turn off your your quote-unquote loyal fan base I don't know what what do you guys think is Weezer's legacy? Like is Weezer a great band overall? I think overall, yes. I think Weezer is a great band. For me, Daniel, for you, me, but do you think like the dis- yes. yes. I would say they are um I would say it's possible you could make the argument they've diluted what made them special by putting out so many albums that kind of run together in a lot of ways. 
Um, but I don't think so. I mean, I can still go back to and listen to the blue album, um, the pink album and or Pinkerton, sorry, and and you know other other earlier albums and still consider them works of genius, um, in my opinion. And mm-hmm. so I don't think those are diminished by um, weaker, but you know, not I would not say bad follow up efforts. I would not say. Um, and I think I would not say that the world that Weezer's catalog is overall more impoverished <laughs> just because they have so, so many records. Um, yeah. um, I, I still think there, there are, you know, classics diamonds and I, and I do, I do, you know, I appreciate that they are still making music and still, and you know, at this point, they're all probably incredibly rich. So at some level, this is this is about them enjoying the music, or you know, them inflating their egos or something. There's uh, <laughs> can't just be to make money. <laughs> one more thing that I wanted to say about the album that I that I forgot to say early on, but I think the one thing that makes Weezer unique is that they always like they always find new new things to sing about or to make music about. It's not always about a girl, although they have plenty of songs that deal with women. Um, but it's not always about, you know, getting getting with a girl or something like that. They always they find new ways of making music. And I think this album, this this specific album has has done that. Yeah, yeah, one I mean, of my favorite Weezer songs is about how their lawyer and like a love letter to how good their lawyer is, one of their early lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it's called Suzanne. Is Jamie. It is? It's Jamie. Jamie. Oh, I love that song. Yeah. yeah. That one's on a Blue great album, song. Or the deluxe deluxe blue album. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I'm a bit more conflicted about Weezer. It's kind of like that Simpsons dilemma, um, where you're 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 creating something for so long and some of it is just classic and will always be uh, appreciated and will you'll always go back to it and you'll probably always love uh and, and sometimes maybe you wish that was just it and but yeah i mean does it dilute like if weezer puts out bad albums and they have it doesn't mean that pinkerton and the blue album are any less great you can still view them in in isolation and I think I also do think Weezer has put out good albums. I think the Green album is a good album, right? Like I think probably at the yeah. time it it had so such high expectations because it was a follow. Even though I think people like that album, and I want to say some of their biggest hits came from that album, like uh, Island in the Sun and what's Hashpipe was in that album. So they probably made a lot of money from the Green album. But I've also really enjoyed. Um, Everything will be all right in the end. Um, I think the Red Album is a little uneven, but it's still it has some good songs. So they put they put out some good albums, but it's a very uneven discography. And sometimes I I don't know if this is fair, but there are contemporaries that I can somewhat compare them to, right? Maybe not since 1994, but like. I, when I think about Weezer, I also think about The Killers. And I believe Hot Fuzz, their first album, came out in 2005. And I would say The Killers have a more even discography than Weezer. 
Um, and in fact, even their last album of that, I believe, came out last year. Last year, I believe it's called Imploding the, Mir the Mirage. I enjoyed that album. I enjoyed that album more, more than so far I've enjoyed this album. Um, I know that they came out way later, but Vampire Weekend was another uh, band that, you know, back in, in college, um, I, they, their first album came out 2008, 2009. Um, they, I listened to them from the Obama era to now. I think I actually think their discography is is masterful, and it's it's I, they have not come close to making a bad album. Uh, so when I have those to compare them, I think Weezer falls a little bit short. But I'm not sure if that comparison is even fair because I'm not even sure if these bands ever created something as as impactful and important to me as the Blue Album or Pinkerton. It's weird. I know that I, I did not clarify anything, but. That's how I feel. You can't go comparing Weezer to other bands yeah. or anything. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> you just go. Weezer is, you put your hoodie on, you put your warm hoodie, your old warm, that's like, we should have thrown it out on. months ago. You put it on, you, you, you hide in the closet, and you, and you listen to Weezer, and, and it's safe, comfortable. You, you just can't go comparing it to all these experimental new newfangled bands i don't know <laughs> well I, I i agree with you though their their discography their discography is incredibly uneven yeah that that i mean don't get me wrong weezer has had bad albums i would even say terrible albums um to say the least but blue and pinkerton it's like it's our it's our high school it's our it's our um childhood and even even you can't take that away. I don't want to say childhood, but like our, I guess our teenage years, you know, our our formative years, right? Like yeah. high school, like middle school, high school, that kind of shaped our. They, I'm sure they have massive influence into what I like even now, right? Like you, like I can still probably connect some dots. Like even even as even you know, there, there's bands like that where. Uh, Weezer or even the Postal Service with just their one album like influenced my taste in music so much that even the artists that I listen to now probably have some sort of connection to those kinds of bands. So thank you, Weezer. I, I appreciate yeah. your your artistic input in this world. I'm glad you like the album, uh, Sam Me too. and Daniel. Uh, I'll what, give it more tries. Do you guys have a favorite do you guys have a favorite quote unquote bad Weezer album? I think mine is Maladroit. It was a lot of people don't like that album, but I top to bottom think it's a very strong album. I think the Red album was not highly received, but I really I for the most part, there's songs in that album that I don't really like, but for the most part I enjoy that album as a whole. I think Ratitude is probably my favorite bad album. There are a lot of bad songs on that album and not just bad songs but songs that are like don't make me feel anything which is even worse i think but there are some still really good songs on that album hurley is terrible though oh my god hurley is so bad maladroit is i think is a, they're one of their most experimental it the sound is totally weird and fuzzed up yeah yeah, I don't I don't really like Maladroit that much, but I agree with you in that it is really one of their more experimental albums. And hey, well, 
I'm glad it succeeded for some. It just didn't for me. Still, thank you for the Weezer talk, Sam, Daniel. I know we're going on a little bit long right now, and normally I would just cut it short, but screw it. I want to talk about what I've been indulging in lately, and that's WandaVision, the new Disney Plus show. Do you guys remember the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe? You guys remember all that? Remember uh, Endgame? Remember Infinity War? Do you guys remember Captain America Civil War? Those classic films? Are you talking about Tobey Maguire? Uh, no. That universe? Maybe I am. Who knows? After WandaVision, anything's possible. Uh, let's talk about it. Just, I'm, okay, before we get into spoiler talk, let's, let's just talk about the this, this show in general. Um, because the show essentially starts off with Wanda Maximoff, a.k.a. Scarlet Witch, although she's not called that yet in the MCU, MCU uh, as of yet. But Wanda Maximoff and Vision, who last we know was killed by Thanos in, um, in Infinity War, uh, they're moving into a new uh, town called Westview to start a, a family together. And it's all under this premise that this is just some weird 1950s sitcom. And so you know right off the bat, something's wrong, right? Like, what's going on? Why Why is Wanda and Vision, why are they in this weird town? And it's all in black and white. And it's all uh, set in this 1950s sitcom format. And right from the get-go like it just or go- you think or you think the mcu's just gone off it's it's just like yeah. all right they're just doing ran- they're yeah. star wars now they're just doing random stuff they're gonna make money no matter what they do and they're just gonna throw out these crazy ideas um and it, it really goes with this premise like it goes hard like the first couple of episodes are basically it is basically just some weird tribute to to sitcoms and a, a really good one like uh it, it really like you could tell that the, the creators of this show really took a look at like i dreamed of genie or bewitched and and got a lot of influence from all those sitcoms and then it kind of moves throughout the years so it's it, it like imitates a 1950s sitcom and then it it moves into like a 1960s uh sitcom all the way to like the last episode it hits like 1980s sitcom with just a masterful intro by the way they, they, they have different intros uh, each episode to kind of reflect like the time that they're in but the 1980s one was like this like perfect strangers full house type of intro and it was just mwah. like i had a huge smile on my face uh it, throughout that whole thing uh, but essentially the idea that you get right from the get-go is that this isn't real life. Like something happened. Like something happened to Wanda between Endgame and now, where she's caught in this like mysterious fake universe where her and Vision are are trying to get a family together. And then throughout time, you start seeing like the uh the window dressing fall apart and, and you start seeing behind the curtain. And behind the curtain is the real world. It's what's like, what is going on with, with Wanda Maximoff? Like, who, who's doing this to her? There's uh, there, there's people trying to investigate this and trying to communicate with her and asking, like, what's, what's happening to you, Wanda? Like, who's doing this to you? And you slowly start to, to kind of see what's, what's going on. And this is where I'm going to say to our listeners, 
if you have not watched WandaVision, if you are not caught up until, uh, at least to WandaVision Episode 5 and you don't want anything to be spoiled, please stop listening to the episode now. Uh, sign off. Uh, imagine you're listening to the Friendly Reminder music playing right now and just press pause. Don't listen any further. Again, what we're going to say going from here on out is going to be spoilers. So please, if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening now. Okay, we can talk about spoilers. And I want to talk about specifically the last moment of episode five, where it looks like Vision... A massive appearance, a massive appearance <laughs> that hasn't... It, it's. I mean, it's crazy. You finally, finally, the return to the MCU, um, Wanda Maximoff's Eastern European accent. Yes, Wonderful. We were all wondering. Sorry, that was a dumb joke. We were all no, like I was wondering throughout the whole thing. I was like, why does she have an American accent? But I guess I in my head, oh, it's because she's trying to. She's trying. I think to make she only had it in her first movie. She had an accent, but I'm pretty sure after that, they kind of it was a little bit off and on. I think yeah, it became more Americanized throughout time. Uh, but yeah. okay, so the last episode. Vision or whatever, we don't know what's going on with Vision because he is supposed to be dead. It looks like the implication is that maybe in her attempt to to uh, restore her life and 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 just try to find happiness, she might have actually brought Vision back to life or created another version of of Vision. But he's he was basically caught up in that whole thing. Like he he. He was not aware of what was going on, and he just followed along. That he was, he moved in with with uh, with Wanda and started a family together. And now, slowly, he's trying to he's slowly figuring out that this isn't really real per se. Like this, this something's going on here, and he's confronting Wanda about it. And they're having a fight, and then it gets interrupted by a knock on the door. And Vision kind of says, like, oh, this always happens. Every time we're about to, to have a conflict, um, you you get somebody to you control this world, so you get somebody to 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 knock on the door. Uh Wanda goes to open the door. Uh, and at there at the door is her brother, Pietro, Quicksilver. But it's not the actor that played Quicksilver in Age of Ultron. It is the actor that played Quicksilver in X-Men Days of Future Past and X-Men Ap Apocalypse. So it's the Fox Universe version of X-Men. Um, again, the, the same universe with... Uh, uh, it's arguably a better version of Quicksilver, too. Yes, the, it's it's uh, in my opinion. I wouldn't say arguably, definitely the better version of Quicksilver. Like that's the one win that the Fox Cinematic Universe got over the MCU. Just Quicksilver, <laughs> nothing else. But uh, so so, but is is that what this is, or is this just a cameo? That's my question. We because don't know. in this show, exactly in the show, the ostensibly Vision is Vision. He doesn't have a memory of how he got here, but he has the same personality. But everybody else in this town is sort of captured. That's when you find out this is this is very much like you know the fifth episode. You kind of find out that Scarlet Witch is the or uh, Wanda is the villain in all of this because she's actually captured this entire town of people and and is keeping them captive to this kind of weird uh, play act that she's trying to do, trying to build a life with Vision. Um, so now, 
so a lot of the people are, so for example, they have a neighbor and it, it, in actuality, their neighbor is another real person with a real personality. Um, but Scarlet Witch has captured that person. So is this person just a captured person pretending to be Quicksilver? That's the, that's the question, right? Because Quicksilver is dead in the MCU, but it, you know, none of it is explained, but you know, I wonder if they're going to explain it or if they're, if this is just a cameo, if this is just somebody playing her brother, that would be weird, I think. But yeah, no, my prediction is is not. I, I don't think they would do this unless there's greater implications. Because you mentioned it, Quicksilver is dead in the MCU, but he's not dead in this other universe uh, where um, you know Magneto is being played by Ian McKellen and um, Professor Xavier is being played by uh, Patrick Stewart. Like he's alive in that universe. And the implication here is that other universes are starting to collide and they're starting to open up and you're getting the multiverse. And in this case, thanks to the, through the magic of corporate synergy, now that Disney owns everything, those other universes are these other cinematic universes coming into this one. So now it's not, not only so now, are they like, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to ask a very nerdy question, which is to say that the MCU timeline has been very well managed. Uh, you know, relatively speaking, it's a very coherent thing um, compared to like the DC universe. Right. Um, but now are they just wholesale adopting the garbage X-Men universe, which is all filled with contradictions that don't make any sense that, that have that continuity. If you've ever tried to piece it together is a God awful mess and doesn't make yeah. any sense. So I, I, are they adopting that? Cause I, I hope not. I think that's the that question. Be... Like this is like, this is beautiful in the sense of like, this is like a great Comic-Con moment. Like this is great at getting the nerds super excited. Like it's it's a cameo that none of us were anticipating. Oh, I was kind of anticipating it actually. But but it's it's like a big bold like thing that get that can get nerds excited about this like where where the MCU is going forward. But like I'm not sure it, it remains to be seen if this is good storytelling. Like is is it going to be coherent? Like is it going to make sense? Uh what we do know is that this Well so I have a lot of faith because the the show so far has been phenomenal. Like the and I gotta say, and I wish I had kind of said this before we got into spoilers, but the the performances of the the people who are outside and inside are, are phenomenal all around. Uh, 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 Kat Denning comes back, which uh, what is Kat Denning being ha, been doing? You know, from the Thor movies, she comes back and she's a she's a delightful delightful um addition randall park comes back playing um his character an fbi agent from i believe the ant-man movies and and he's delightful also yeah um, I, all around this is just a great movie and i trust and they did such a great job building the story up until now i trust that this isn't just pure pr this isn't just a pure fanboy moment that they have something to contribute to the greater story um Something about multi-worlds or, or, or something like that. Um, but, you know, I have faith because the the the, the first five episodes, I think, were just a, a great build-up to this moment. Yeah. And this is kind of where I'm going to pat myself on the back because and you guys are going to have to back me up. But we had our meeting a couple of days ago on Thursday, the day before this episode aired. And I my prediction was that, well, 
I thought it was going to be towards the end of the of the show, not not necessarily now, but a, a, somebody from the X Men universe, from the Fox X Men universe, was going to show up here at some point. I thought it was going to be Magneto, just because like Ian McKellen playing Magneto, just because I. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, Daniel, but I believe at some point Magneto is Wanda's father, right? In the comics, like at some point in the comics. Uh, yes, she is. Yeah, canonically, Magneto is both Quicksilver and uh, Wanda's father. Yeah, so I thought there was going to be a connection there. Maybe they st there still will be. Um, but the reason I thought uh, uh, that was going to happen w was... It would be great if they brought... Magneto is another part of that universe, I think, that either, either Fassbender or uh, Ian McKellen, Magneto, I would be happy to bring into the MCU. Yeah. And well, the reason I thought that was going to happen wasn't because of anything going on in the show. It was because of what I knew about the MCU going forward. We know that there's a new Doctor Strange movie that's coming out, and it's called uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. We've also have seen, and maybe this is another spoiler, I don't know if it, people have been following the casting news ar around the new Spider-Man movie, um, but there's been pretty strong rumors to suggest that both Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are going to show up uh, in this movie and at some point uh, to reprise their roles in their respective Spider-Man fi films as Peter Parker. Again, in another probably like multiverses colliding. Um, and it just the fact that this show, WandaVision, it, you know, it's it's like a mini alternative universe. It's like, oh, so this is how the is going to open up. And it's going to end up with us knowing that, you know, all of these things are possibilities now. And yeah, here we are. Um, I'm super excited. I'm super excited for the rest of the episodes, but I'm excited of what, like, somehow I, I'll commend them again. This is corporate synergy. It required billions and billions of dollars to be transferred around. So in some ways, and like companies eating up other companies or taking buying rights. So in some ways, it's kind of gross. But in terms of just like expanding this universe in a way, again, and again, they did it in a way that I did not think was going to be possible. Here we are. It's definitely breathing new life and i think with with wandavision in particularly earned because i think it is a very good show and you said you were more excited about it than anything in the mcu since the original uh, avengers movie um, i don't know if i agree with that per se but i do think it is just a very creative uh, genre defying piece of work that um you know if they continue in this vein then they have every right to to expand this universe and 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 still make it very enjoyable in a lot of yeah. ways like this is the genre of this move this show is is i could not even tell you what genre it is it, it's comedy mixed with very intense drama and very almost um scary at times it can be very scary uh and and uh, yeah there's a horror and, element yeah and i think you know uh, it if they can push forward like this, I, I, I'm very much looking forward to what they come out with. Yeah. And I want to say, I want to give a shout out to a friend of the pod, Knack, uh, that he mentioned that this wouldn't have been possible if, if like 
Disney Plus didn't exist or, or they couldn't put it out as a show format because this could never be a movie, right? I, I don't think people would buy going to a movie and like the first hour just being like this weird sitcom. I think it needed this show structure where you're just watching 30 minutes of it and, and it's it's really easy to take in and really easy to just kind of laugh at the sitcom moments, just enjoy them. And then slowly, a little by little, you start seeing like the greater story at large and where, where this is actually going. Um, it's, uh, I don't know. Again, I, I, this was the plan all along. Uh, this was pre COVID and everything like that, but maybe even the fact that it's coming out now where, you know, we're not really going to movie theaters. Uh, the blockbusters are, are getting delayed. Something like this is, it's, I don't want to use the word serendipitous because that's, I don't want to undermine the whole pandemic thing, but I think it's, it's kind of, it's fruitful for them that this is how we're getting the, the continuation of the MCU universe. And it's, it's, yeah, this is the most fun I've had since the Avengers, maybe because of this, because this is the first time in a while where I don't really know where it's going. Like as big as uh, Infinity War and Endgame were, I think they actually followed a pretty logical path. Like, oh, okay, so Thanos comes in, he wins. We knew it's going to be a two-part, so he quote-unquote wins the, the first movie. Um, something bad happens to a lot of Avengers. And then in the second one, we're going to get that really big moment that fans are clamoring for. Um, the, the thing with that is that they pulled it off so well, but I don't think it was necessarily that unexpected. Here, I actually generally don't know where this is going and where, where we're going to be like even like one or two episodes from now. And that's that's why I'm having so much fun with it compared to other movies. It also lets Paul Bethany, uh, I don't know if that's how you pronounce the name, the guy who plays Vision and the guy who played Jarvis previously, it really lets him shine. And if the MCU is about to, you know, if he's about to eject, be ejected from the MCU, um, this is it really lets him shine. And I, I think he did shine in the movies he was in, but he was not in, you know, he was limited. And, and um, so if they're going to ultimately end up killing him off, I think this is an excellent way to do it. And just to add like another level of nerdy nerdiness on this um, in age of Ultron, um, they had Wanda doing like, you know, crazy, uh, mind mind control things and then uh then after that they kind of got away from that and every other thing had wanda doing more like kinetic sort of throwing red balls around floating stuff around um but she wasn't really like mind controlling so now this is i feel like this is kind of a return to the kind of com a little more to the comic scarlet witch where she has her powers are a lot grander um than you even give her credit for. And I get it. The, the, you know, she never had her own movie and the, the Avengers universe is big and they have a lot of characters. So you can't really give her all these powers and, and let her run with it. But, but this is, I think finally showing off how very, especially in this last episode, how actually freaking powerful she is where, um, you know, she, she shows up with um, the organization that is trying to free this town that she's taken and they are all pointing a gun. They're all pointing, you know, like 50 of them are pointing uh, guns at her. And you can see the the lights on her chest. And she's just making demands. And then as soon as she finishes, she, you know, waves her hand a little bit. And they immediately all turn and point the light at the guy who was giving or point their uh, weapons at the guy who was giving them commands previously. Like she immediately just controls them all and has them point their weapons away. And it's just a it's amazing 
testament to how powerful she is, you know? And I think, you know, I, I'm enjoying that. And I, I'd love to see how this, because I think the plan is to make her a bigger part of the universe. She's going to be in this upcoming Doctor Strange movie for sure. So I do, I do really look forward to what they're going to do with her. Yeah, I think the show pretty much goes out of the way to say she is probably the most powerful being in this universe right now. Um, they even mentioned in this last episode, it's like, oh, yeah, she probably would have beaten Thanos uh, if not for, what did they call it, the Blitz or something like that? Um, so they're they're really going out of the way to say she she is a really powerful being. There, I didn't even talk about like Monica Rambeau, um, who I believe is Spectrum in the, in the comics, and this looks like it's going to be an origin story for her. There's so many Easter eggs in this thing. Like even she in Monica in this episode mentioned that she knew like a space engineer, and it kind of looks like she's about to call whoever this person is. And I'm wondering if is this a reference to Reed Richards and kind of like beginning the introduction of the Fantastic Four into this this universe? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I, I'm, we're going on too long. I don't want to keep speculating. I urge everybody. Uh, well, if you're listening to this part, I hope you've already watched all five episodes. If you haven't, and you know you're okay with the spoilers, go watch the show. I agree with Daniel. I think Paul Bettany is giving one of the best performances in this MCU so far. I think he's great, um, and he's he really. He's funny. He and in this this episode, he he was very dramatic, but it was all very believable. He's giving a hell of a performance. Great stuff. I'm loving it. But okay, guys, how many episodes are there? So far, there's five, but I believe there's going to be nine. I'm not sure if there's going to be a second season ever. I doubt it. This seems like a one-off, but nine episodes. So we still have four more. So lots going to happen. All right, guys, let's go ahead and close the show. I know we went on a little long this time, but we had so much to cover. Uh, Daniel, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Gus. No problem. Sam, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I enjoyed talking about Weezer. It was great. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us here again. Again, I hope you enjoyed some of these lighter segments. Uh, we're going to try to add them on whenever we can. There's going to be weeks where we're, you know, obviously current events and politics are going to demand most of our attention. But when we can, we're, we're going to talk about some of these lighter subjects as well. So I do hope you enjoyed that and this episode. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Friendly Reminder.